The Square Peg Podcast. Mold breakers, trailblazers, and takers of roads less traveled. Not all of us look the way the world expects us to look, think as the world expects us to think, or arrive at our destination the way the world expects us to. On the Square Peg Podcast, we give a voice to mold breakers, trailblazers, and takers of roads less traveled. I'm your host, Andrew Lawrence, and here are their stories. Thank you to the Searchlight Needles for getting us started as always. The hashtag needles aren't just a quartet of middle-aged, overweight, and balding El Pasos. Robert Martinez, Josh Smith, Adrian Ortiz, and David Science are four really fantastic guys who hold down jobs and take care of families during the week, and they rock out on the weekends. You can find them on the web at www.searchlightneedles.com. You can find them on Facebook, and you can download their album on all streaming services. And now, here's a message from one of the sponsors who make this program possible. Keith Johnson, owner of Camino Tattoo Studio, has been a professional licensed tattoo artist in Las Cruces since 2000. He does everything from American traditional to photorealistic tattooing, and he works by appointment only. Email him today to get your custom tattoo. You can find him at CaminoTattooStudio.com or from the bio in the link at www.CaminoTattooStudio.com. Of course, you can also find Camino Tattoo Studio on Instagram and Facebook. And just a little personal note for me, um, turning 48 here real soon, didn't get my first tattoo until about two years ago. And um, while Keith didn't do that one, he's done three since then. And uh, I've been going through this kind of transition, you know, in my later 40s, if you will, and uh, made some changes to my fitness, to my, my supplementation and my diet. And I've seen some big changes in my body. And I'll tell you, I've never loved my body. I probably never will. But with the changes I've made and the artwork that Keith has uh, been able to put on my body, learning to hate it a little bit less every day. So if you want to be uh, like me and get some good artwork on you, give give Keith a, an email uh, and, and go get your the tattoo. Square Peg Podcast. Just a little program note to my listeners. Uh, I do need to make a content warning. We are going to be discussing some very sensitive subjects with uh, talk about abuse, sexual abuse, and recovery. Uh, this podcast is probably not meant for the either the faint of heart or for children. Thank you. Suen Kenny Noziska is a native of Big Sky Country, but now she's as fortunate as I am to live in the most beautiful city in the world with the most beautiful mountains where she is a licensed clinical social worker. Her specialized training and experience in the field of play therapy, particularly with children and adolescents who have survived trauma, including physical and sexual abuse, will be the focus of our conversation today, and I consider myself very fortunate to be able to call her a colleague at my day job. Suan, welcome to the Square Peg Podcast. Thank you very much for having me. Did I get anything wrong? You got everything right. Okay, and I don't know why I, I want to say you're from Montana, but you're from South Dakota, right? South Dakota, correct. Okay, and I, and I learned that. I was corrected on that. I actually just did an interview that's going to be airing, I think, next week with a guy who's from Montana, so that's maybe why I had that on my mind. Um, you ready for three months of wind? Oh, Lord, no. Do you guys get that? up? I'm sure there's a lot of wind up there. Things are flat. You know, what we get are really, really bad winters. We don't get the bad, bad winds like in the spring as we do here in New Mexico. But our winters in South Dakota are brutal and not for the faint at heart. I can imagine. You know, a very good friend of mine who I actually had on the show last season or maybe the season before, uh, Pastor Jared Carson, his wife, uh, Laura, just got a job up there They in, in Fargo in North Dakota. And I have a, a list of cities that are on my, my weather app on my iPhone that I, where I follow the weather, and I just feel sorry for them all the time. I do, too. That's why I don't live there anymore. And I would imagine that the winters here are probably like maybe late spring, early fall to you, yes, which you're used to. Definitely. But it, it's been a while since you've lived up there. 
You know, I have been going back in the winters uh, just for like a week at a time. I was there Why? in December. Oh, long story. <laughs> Family owns a cattle ranch, and that's when they calve, and we were back there, and uh, it was 17 below, zero, without the wind chill. Without the wind chill. I don't even want to know what the wind chill was. That's amazing. You know, I actually, um, it seems to me that the windy season has gotten longer. My mother, who was from El Paso and had, hasn't lived there since 1960, used to tell me when I would complain about the wind, she was like, oh, that horrible month of wind in March. And I'm like, man, if there was ever an advertisement for climate change, it was only one month. I mean, it's only been 60 years. And you're, set, you're talking about one month of wind. We get a good three months. And that's enough for me that actually the wind causes me some pretty bad anxiety and puts me in a really bad mood. When I first moved out here and I saw a sign like, beware of blowing wind or dust storms, I'm like, how bad could those be? Until I was actually in one. And now I experience the wind. I'm like, oh, this is awful. Your mouth gets kind of crunchy. Oh, my allergies get terrible, congestion, sneezing, all that good stuff. You know, the strangest thing, it does. It bothers me less when we have a bad windstorm with a bunch of blowing dust than when it's a nice, perfectly clear day and the only thing to screw it up is the wind. It's, it's the weirdest thing, but then again, it's, I mean, it's, that's me. So. Um, so if we can't find uh, a perfect way, and we talked about this, you know what my show is about. Um, you obviously have a very unique job. It's a very unique, very unique experience, as I was going to say. If that's not unique enough or doesn't make you enough of a, a, a trailblazer, um, being, you'll, you'll be the first person I've interviewed live in studio who's from, who's from that part of the country. How about that? That sounds good to me. What's South Dakota famous for? Mount Rushmore. Okay, the Black Hills. Yes, Black Hills dances Motorcycle with rallies. Every, yep, Sturgis Motorcycle Rally and Home of Sue Ann. We're probably famous for that too. But. There you go. Are you a motorcycle person? Oh, no. You're not a motorcycle person? No. Okay, so you actually went to the University of South Dakota? Yes, I did proudly. Go Yotes. Go Yotes. Okay, I didn't know that that's what they were called. A D2 school, I would imagine? Yes. Okay. Any, is that where you like always wanted to go or? No, it's just there's two big universities. There's South Dakota State University and University of South Dakota. USD is in my hometown of Vermilion, and so that's just where the path took me, not too far from home. Right, and most people wouldn't know this, but the, the, the capital of South Dakota is p- pronounced Pierre, not it, Pierre. Is that you correct? are correct. It is Pierre. My dad was a big geography guy, and he had quizzed us all the time on, like, on road trips. When we were driving the car, we had, he would quiz us on, on state capitals. And it, it's interesting because that's how we know when someone's not from the Midwest, when they call it Pierre. I'm right. Like, oh, yes, you don't know. It's Pierre. And you actually, I find it really interesting. So um, pretty consistent with what you do for a living. Your bachelor's degree is in psychology, but you minored in bio, biology and chemistry. Yes. My, I'm sorry, minored. Yes, um, that's correct. What was, was there a particular path? Were you considering a medical school route or a nurse practitioner or a prescribing psychologist or something? I just kind of kept it open when I first was attending college and was heavy on the science classes and just ended up with leaning more towards psychology than I did towards medical or chemistry. So those were my minors. And what was the idea then? Did you know that you wanted to go into therapy? Social oh, work? no. Even when I got my graduate degree, I went to become a child protective services social worker in, at San Diego State University. I thought I would be like an investigator and crack these cases and protect children. And then I had these two outstanding internships and they were both very clinical. They were all about diagnosing children and therapy. And then postgraduate had some great um, learning opportunities and great mentors in the child abuse field. And here's where I ended up. So when did you actually get started doing therapy or, or doing clinical work like that? 
if you post-graduation would have been 2000, no, would have been 1998. I got my independent license in 2001. What that means is at that point, I could open my own practice, provide therapy without supervision, do all that stuff. But I worked for 10 years for the Department of Mental Health in Southern California and then ended up relocating out to this area and opened my private practice in 2008. So I have been here in private practice seeing exclusively abused and traumatized kids since 2008, 14 years. Now, what brought you here to New Mexico? The wind. (laughs) The wind blew you in from the west. Like a tumbleweed, yes. Right. I okay. love Las Cruces. This is perfect because it's not a huge city, but it's not a super small town. So it's just got the right. It's, balance. you know what it's, and I think I feel the same way that you do. I grew up 13.2 miles from the white house. Um, and I moved out here in 1998. I came out of here with my dad. My, as I said, my mother's from El Paso. So I'd, I'd been to this area to visit grandparents, but I actually, I, I had this memory a lot of, I don't know why I've had it so many times recently, but Came out here on spring break of my my, la- my last semester of college with my dad because we we're going to check it out because I was going to move out here. I had a, for some friends are from out here. I wanted to, to get into law enforcement. And we, we were on our way to Silver City, and my dad and I got off the highway. We got off in Las Cruces, and that was when they still had the, the downtown mall closed down, and you, would, and you would have to drive around it. you go up Main Street, and you pass, like, the Eichert's Furniture, and then it would be – it was the pedestrian mall. Oh, okay. Gotcha. I don't know. They may have opened it up before you moved here. I, don't, I can't remember how long it's been, but – I remember being right at that stoplight by the Wells Fargo Bank and noticing how blue the sky was. And I looked to my right and I saw the mountains and I had the thought out loud. I said, I could live here. Little did I know a year later, this was 1998 and I've been here since 1999. So uh, I think we both share uh, a very, a very positive uh, view of Las Cruces, if you will. Now, um, your work with, I, I mentioned in kind of the intro here that, that, I consider you, we are colleagues. Um, you were part of the multidisciplinary task force. Um, I see you probably once a month at the MDT meetings. Uh, what can you tell me, give me, give me a, for our listeners, the best description of what the, the local uh, Las Cruces and Doniana County multidisciplinary task force is and what you do uh, for that, for the task force. So the task force is comprised of basically the key players in our child abuse cases. So it's the district attorney's office, it's all of our local law enforcement, the sheriff's department, New Mexico State Police, Las Cruces Police Department. It's our Children, Youth, and Families Department, CYFD, which is Child Protective Services, the uh, La Casa, our domestic violence shelter, and our Children's Advocacy Center under La Pinon. And our mission is to minimize the trauma that children and adolescents go through when they've been victims of crime and abuse. So we look at uh, coordination of services and we coordinate that investigation. I believe we opened our full Children's Advocacy Center back in 2017. So it's a one-stop place where the families come to the Children's Advocacy Center and we conduct forensic interviews. We hook them up with mental health services, law enforcement, and uh, Child Protective Services will watch interviews go on through uh, closed circuit television. And that way kids don't have to go through multiple interviews and tell the police something and then come tell the forensic interviewer something and then tell the CPS investigator something. And it is a, it's a nationwide trend. So we are doing best practice in terms of child abuse investigations. And then our team just coordinates all of that process. Like 
what where are we running into bumps and what do we need to do better or what did we do right that we need to do better the next time a group of siblings come through with a history of trauma. Now, how long have you been involved with uh, MDT? I want to say since 2010. So it was shortly after I moved to Las Cruces. I had already began establishing myself as an expert in the area of child abuse. And the MDT participants actually reached out to me after I moved here and said, we think you're bringing something of value to the table. Can you? Would you be willing to be part of this team and help us coordinate care to reduce the trauma that these kids experience? Now, how were they aware of your services? Now, we, we, I've heard you, and we'll get to this before, I've heard you testify recently in court, and I've read your CV. You've, you have presented internationally. Um, how, did the, how did whoever it is that brought you, who brought you, who invited you to come be part of the MDT, and how did they know you? The reason they knew me is because uh, I rented office space from Dr. Maggie Locatelli, and she was a registered play therapist supervisor. She's now retired, and I was a registered play therapist supervisor, and we were the only two credentialed play therapists in the whole community. So when I went to relocate and I needed office space, I reached out to her. And when I moved in and had rented space, she actually sent out a a good newsletter is what she called it to all the key players saying, this is an expert. She's coming to town. She treats abused children and she'll be here on February 1st of 2008. And that's what started the ball rolling. You know, it's funny when you started talking about everything being under one roof in 2017, I didn't realize it had been that recent because I've been, um, it's only been about six or seven years since these types of cases have made up probably at least half of my caseload. Um, but I've been working these types of cases since 2010. And I remember the forensic interviews used to be done at FYI. Yes. And then there was office space. Um, and I don't know if it was all of La Pignon or if it was just the CAC, the Children's Advocacy Center, but it was it was at a, there was an older building on the corner of Griggs and Alameda. And then it's really only been, I think, since 2017 when they moved into across from my building over on Botel Boulevard, um, where at La Pignon and the CAC and everything's under one roof. Of course, they have uh, an office, some office space and an exam room up on the campus of Memorial Medical Center. Um, but it was, you just, you bringing that up, it, it got me thinking. I hadn't realized that it was that recent that we got everything um, under one roof. Now, Something I kind of I'm going to go back a little bit because I read something in your CV I didn't know about. You've done some work or you do some work with the Office of the Medical Investigator. Yes, that's correct. Talk about that. That's interesting. So when there is an unexpected death, like a suicide or a homicide, I am contracted with them to intervene with the surviving family member. So, for example, a husband commits suicide in the house, and then the family needs ongoing services. So. Uh, OMI will reach out to me and will have me intervene with that family. And that could be very short term or it could be long term or I could refer them out. But I'm the initial contact point for these um, survivors in the family. That's it's interesting. And I don't know whether to say I should be embarrassed or, or that I didn't know that or, or kind of mad that nobody's made me aware of it because – you know, we have always, we have our in-house victim advocates. Uh, the district attorney's office, usually once a case gets charged or indicted, their advocates take over. In a case like this, um, I mean, I've, I've worked plenty of homicides and suicides, and I've just never known that your services were available. How does your, how does your work uh, come into play with the local law enforcement agencies, victim advocates, the DA's office? I mean, is there, do you guys interact? Do you guys... Uh, I interact with them, not necessarily in the crisis mode of the case. 
certainly through ongoing cases, I have a, a really good working relationship with all of our law enforcement entities, with CYFD, with our DA's office. I know a lot of our victim advocates at the DA's office have been longstanding advocates, maybe even predating when I moved to Las Cruces. And so when a family comes to me, I get permission for them from them to talk to all the other entities involved. So in the as a kind of preemptive strike, I get a release so I can speak to the DA's office just in case that crime gets prosecuted all the way to trial. And so I'll use the victim advocates like the family needs victim assistance funds or um, this child might need a video deposition. This family needs uh, travel expenses because they're coming from this city that they live in now to come testify in Donana. Now, do you, are you doing therapy for these people as well? Oh, absolutely. My okay. primary role is therapy. Right. But so, I work case management-wise and advocacy-wise with the, the team itself. Okay, because it seems to me that because of what you do and what your specialty is, you would be somebody that would be that to whom victims or survivors would be referred out and they would be referred by the in-house law enforcement victim advocates or I didn't realize that you were as, as directly involved. Now, I want to kind of talk about I'm, I'm looking at my list of questions here and I'm going to go a little bit out of order here. But um, you do a lot of expert witness work. And uh, I, for reasons I don't know, only uh, heard you testify for the first time in December. Um, I had a case with uh, a man who did some really bad things to a child. And we have uh, so glad to have this really badass prosecution team um, who we worked with that day. And um, I heard you testify, and I'm going to ask you in a few minutes to talk about um, a lot of the things you testified about. Um, cause I'll, and I'll tell you, I'm going to fanboy here a little bit. Uh, I think the star of any trial like that is a, is a victim who's able to get up and give testimony and talk about what happened to them, things that they've talked to, had to talk about before. Um, although we do, as you said, we try to minimize it with, uh, you know, watching, watching the interview, the forensic interview on a closed circuit television. But I will say that you, you had to, you know, aside from the victim who testifies, you kind of stole the show. And if I had to put one thing out there that probably convinced all 12 of those jurors to find this man guilty, it was your testimony. And then the other thing is I've been, I've been, again, I've been working these types of cases for a dozen years for half, about half that time. It's made up at least half of my caseload. Um, and I've been to trial, you know, I've worked hundreds of, hundreds of child sexual abuse cases, uh, been to trial numerous times. The first time you've ever, I'm thinking to myself, why the hell have, and I asked, I asked the prosecution team, why isn't she a damn witness on every effing case we have? Um, you need to get yourself like a, they need to give you an office at the DA's office and, or, or put you on staff for heaven's sake. I was going to say an F word. Um, but going back to some of the things I heard you testify about, can you just give, uh, my listeners, some background on how often child sexual abuse occurs, who is most at risk of being a victim, who's most likely or where do our most likely uh, uh, violators or, or, or perpetrators come from. Just some of the basic stuff that if you were giving a, a five-minute PSA, things that you would say. So our national stats tell us that childhood sexual abuse is super prevalent. It is a social epidemic. It is one out of every 10 children before they turn 18 will be sexually abused. And the way that looks for Las Cruces or any community is you can walk into Central Elementary or uh, Vista Middle School or Oñate High School and simply by the nature of counting off 10 students, boom, you have captured a victim. That's how prevalent it is. 
Most of the offenders, 90% of the time, the offender is someone that the child knows and trusts, which means the family also knows and trusts that offender. 60% are family members, so fathers, grandfathers, uncles, boyfriends. 30% are um, known in the sense that they have a role in the child's life. This is where we capture things like teachers or priests or gymnastic doctors or Penn State coaches, all of that type of stuff. And only a small portion are strangers, 10%. So a lot of times society is fooled because we think that sexual abusers are homeless men that hide in the bushes and jump out at schools and grab these unassuming children when actually 90% of the time it's someone the child knows and trusts. So they set that child up. They, we call it grooming in the field. They, they lure the child in and uh, create secrecy around the relationship. And a lot of times the sexual abuse dynamics start before the first sexual touch. So it's long hugs or it's tickling that goes awry or it's inappropriate sexual jokes. And then they get the child used to increasingly more intrusive um, sexual contact, like rubbing the leg, now rubbing the entire leg, now going up to the vaginal area. So before teens and kids even really understand what's happened, it's so subtle. Now they're being sexually abused, and yet it's by someone I love. So I don't really want him to get in trouble because it's my mom's boyfriend or it's my stepdad or grandpa. And then who do I tell? And if I'm going to tell someone, are they going to believe me? Are they going to think bad of me? Am I going to get in trouble? Is the abuser going to get in trouble? Is my family going to fall apart because of this? So we it puts these children and teens in such a terrible predicament in terms of disclosing. And then unfortunately, when victims do disclose, they're frequently met with this disbelief and non-support. Well, are you sure it happened? Or um, are, are you lying? And we'll, we'll have situations where moms will actually take their child in the room with the offender and say, she says you're doing this. Is that true? And of course he's going to say, oh, no, I didn't do that. And so then the child's like, oh, no, I'm not going to be believed. Holy shit, I'm just going to say it didn't happen. And that's the recantation. So then it makes kids look like they're not credible because, number one, disclosure is delayed. It didn't, they didn't tell right away. And then, two, they took it back to preserve their family. You know, um, it's funny you bring up the recanting because I, you know, in the hundreds of cases I've worked, I've had two. One of them was obviously at the direction of family, and we couldn't do a damn thing about it because it was a child of an age who, in the initial disclosure, described things that no child that age should even know exist and um, was way too much detail for it to have been made up. Um, and then, of course, was was taken back. And the other one was actually somebody uh, who was uh, in mid-teens and... Um, they admitted eventually doing so. And what I always, what I always tell people is that you have to be of a certain age and intellectual and cognitive capacity to be able to make something like that up. So if you're accusing a seven year old, you're, it's a bad deal. Now, the other problem, what a couple of the big hurdles uh, with the delayed disclosure is, you know, up until the age of 12, a forensic examination, a, a sexual assault nurse exam can be done up to 96 hours. And once they reach 12 years of age, it's down to 72 so when you have these delayed disclosures, you're not going to have any forensic evidence, any physical evidence, uh, and you have something that was disclosed five, six, ten years later. And in my experience, it's not 
you can convince 10, 10 or 11 jurors, but there's that one who has a really difficult time uh, believing. And, you know, you know what happens. They, the kid gives beautiful testimony, or now they're usually teenagers or almost adults when they testify it, testify about it. And then you get a hung jury, then you have to, you have to go through the, you know, tell them about the prospect of having to go through it all over again. And a lot of times they won't, so then you have to, you have to give a plea deal. But um, who, do you, who do you think is, uh, while we're on that subject, how rare in your experience are false allegations? Well, the stats would say that we only have false allegations 2 to 8% of the time, which means 90 to 98% of the time a kid or a teen is just simply telling the truth. It might be delayed. It might not be chronologically correct. But 90 to 98% of the time, they're just simply saying, hey, this happened to me. And frankly, if I went to Vegas and I had those odds, 98% chance I'm going to win, I would roll with that. 8% seems actually really high. Just in my, like I said, my personal experience out of hundreds of cases, I've had two where we knew, where there was, they were had recanted and we knew that it was a, a false. Um, who, if there's a, is there a particular type of child who is most at risk to be a victim of this type of abuse? So it, sexual abuse transcends all of our cultural barriers. So it happens regardless of your religion, regardless of the income level or education level of the family, regardless of ethnicity. But we have certain things here in New Mexico that put kids at greater risk. So we have a high poverty level. We have low educational attainment. We have high pregnancy, high substance abuse, teen teen pregnancy, high uh, substance abuse. So all of those factors put kids more at risk. Even though I know the nationwide stat is one out of 10, based on my clinical experience, 10 years in California and 14 years here in New Mexico, I have to say, Larry, I see it more here than I did in California. And I don't know if it's because we're a smaller community per se, or if it's because we have all these statewide risk factors. We just, we rank very low in child welfare and child well-being overall. And that bumps up the risk of any type of victimization, including sexual victimization. I guess I want to go a little bit deeper into that. Is there a a particular type of child, maybe a child from a broken home, single parent home, a kid who spends lots of time with extended family or or coaches who take on parenting roles because single parent is always working, uh, children with special needs. Is there any any statistics on that? I don't know all the stats on that, but certainly, especially when you mention kids with special needs, we do see med- medically and um, mentally fragile kids at a greater risk because who are they going to tell? You know, they're they're bedridden or they have uh, speech delays or intellectual delays. So they lack the words to ever say, this is what's happening to me. And then who's going to believe them? We also do tend to see where um, kids are socially isolated. They're in a single parent family. Uh, They're isolated from protective factors in the community like sports or a good quality education, those kids tend to be at a higher risk. But again, I want the audience to know that it can happen to anyone. Again, I feel like we see it more. I experience it more in my practice here in New Mexico than I did when I was in California. Now, is there a particular type of adult who's more likely than not or more likely than others to be an abuser? certain experiences they may have had in their life. We, we hear often that most people who do this were abused as children. 
Okay, so that's a myth. And I'm going to explain as briefly as I can why we know that's not true. We know there's some type of connection or correlation, right, with all kinds of risk factors. So um, there's mental health, there's substance use, you have a history of abuse, um, you don't socially connect well with others. It puts you at risk to be a sex offender, but it's not causal. Having a history of abuse doesn't equal I'm going to be an offender because if it did, every one of our victims, one out of 10 people in society would be a sex offender because we know one out of 10 kids are victims. So so I, to go a little bit further with what's what's commonly what you hear often is that most people who do this had it happen to them. But but on the other hand, most people who have this happen to them actually don't grow up to do this. Correct. Um, now, I want to. I have a really hard and fast rule about this podcast that it's the only place in my life really where I don't talk politics, but I can find a, a, a legit angle to kind of introduce this idea. We talked about who is it, you know, where the risks come from and who a child is most likely or by whom a child is most likely to be abused sexually. And you, all the people you named and all the places you said that it happened. One thing I didn't hear you say was by a transgender person in a public bathroom. That's right. That's another myth. So, right, homosexuals, lesbians, the LGBTQ community, they're the sex offenders, right? And it definitely happened to them. That's why they've got these sexual issues, per se. That is absolutely false. It's just something that you and I both know in the last probably three or four years. I mean, three or four years ago, it was something that everybody was talking about. And whenever that subject comes up, I just say from my own personal experience, look, I've I've investigated literally hundreds of child sexual abuse cases and not a single one of them involved a suspect who was transgender. As a matter of fact, every goddamn one of them was a cisgender person. So I think you're worried about the wrong people hurting your kids. Now, I want to move on to your your private practice or the therapy. What percentage of the therapy do you do uh, comes from your relationship with MDT? Oh, goodness. Probably the large majority of it. I do, I am an open door, like anyone can call me and say, I've got my child, she's five years old, she was sexually abused by her dad, but usually it's coming in a good way from the front line, right? Because the front line people, all of our MDT, CP, CPS, CYFD, the DA's office, law enforcement, the CAC, they all know that treatment leads to better outcomes. So instead of having a parent have to wait for eight months and find a therapist, the team is sort of kicking it up a notch and saying, here's a therapist, let us link you to her. Sue Ann, do you have openings? Yes, I do. Would you be willing to see this child? Here's the mom's contact. And then it's my responsibility to reach out to the parent. So what we're doing, Larry, is we're removing barriers, right? We're removing that stigma. We're removing the obstacle of who's the child therapist, who knows about sexual abuse, what's their phone number, do they take my insurance? And the team, in particular our CAC, takes care of that. They have contracted providers. They require that all of us have current training in trauma treatment. So none, none of this generalist, oh, I can see everybody because that's BS. So they make sure that we have trauma training, that we attend meetings, that we are actively a part of um, advocating for victims of sexual assault, and then they can make referrals to us. So they, again, remove those barriers. So it's easier for kids to go from the crisis and disclosure down to getting the help that they need. And that help is what leads to better outcomes and breaking the cycle of sexual abuse. Now, I guess it leads me to my next question is what is the the 
What are the realistic goals when you treat uh, a child or an adolescent who has been a victim of this type and has this type of trauma? I mean, what is your end game? I mean, what is best case scenario? Boy, that is a loaded question. So Sorry. it is always a case by case example. There are certain factors that we know lead to better outcomes. So kids that get into treatment sooner usually do better. Kids that were believed and supported. And if people don't take anything away from this podcast other than that, if someone discloses to you, believe them and support them, that is the biggest protective factor. So if I have a child that gets into treatment right away, but their mom's like, "Mm, I don't really know if I believe them, that kid's not going to do as well then the kid that gets in treatment six months down the road who has a family behind them saying, we believe this child and we support them and we want them to get help. What do you, I'm trying to figure out how to ask this question. Is it, is it out of the ordinary for someone, say someone gets proactive treatment, gets treatment right away. They're in therapy throughout their teen years. Uh, Is it, how likely is it, um, that they'll never have to go back? Or are there people who go through, have good therapy, and they, they're believed, and they get all the help that uh, they should get, but they get to their 30s or 40s, and now there's there may be still some lingering issues? So when we talk about um, post-traumatic recovery, so healing after sexual abuse, if somebody gets a good dose of really healthy trauma-informed treatment in the front end after their disclosure, they can usually fare pretty well for a while, but it is completely common for them to need to revisit. So for example, kids sexually abused when she's eight, it goes to trial three years later, dad is the offender, he's now in jail. Um, At the age of 21, she gets married and people say, well, how come your dad's not walking you down the aisle? So how do you answer that? Oh, well, because he sexually abused me when I was a kid. He's in jail. You don't want everyone to know that. And so at that point in time, that particular victim may need to get a little brief stint of treatment. Not the same heavy loaded treatment up front that we see. Um, When kids are in a committed relationship, when victims have children, when their child turns the same age that they were when they were sexually abused, these are like the bumps in the road. And it could very well be they can meet those milestones without ever needing treatment. So they've got some good coping strategies, they've got a good support system, Um, and they might maneuver through, my child just turned seven, which is when I was sexually abused, they might maneuver through that fine. Or they might be like, oh, I'm not sleeping very well. I got a lot of stress on me. I'm very isolated. I'm a divorced single mom. And you know what? I do need to revisit this. Now, as, as far as specific strategies, specific therapeutic strategies, obviously you have a a specialty in play therapy. Uh, talk a little bit about what play therapy is and, Talk about play therapy. So people are very confused about what that means. They think it just means I have this random collection of toys. In my playroom, everything that's in there is purposeful. So I actually have a courtroom. I have a police station. I have a hospital. I have medical kits. I have all the things that children need to play out their trauma. A five-year-old child is not going to sit in a chair and explain to me that daddy put something in her private but they can play that out and they can show me images of that. And I can say, uh, my colleague Paris Goodyear Brown out of Tennessee will say, I see what you're showing me and you can show me more. So we do get these very evocative images of either art 
or uh, play metaphors that are really heavily loaded with images related to sexual trauma. For older teens and um, older kids and teens, we tend to use much more directive interventions. So we might do an activity where they draw a picture of their anger related to the sexual abuse, or they draw a picture of how they feel about testifying in court and seeing the offender. So it sounds like it's when you hear play therapy, I think people think that we're just chasing children around the room with anatomically correct dolls, but that's not at all what it is. It's all based in our evidence-based treatment and what we know about trauma. Now you, so we've gotten through the part now where the person expresses uh, the older kids can do it through, you know, verbally or, or through drawing a picture, the children do it. They, they act it out through play things or whatever. Getting it out there is the first part. And I actually, I have some personal experience. I have a very, you know, about five years ago, I I had, um, and you know, the details aren't important or where it came from is not important, but I had something that I held onto that literally gave me nightmares for over three decades. And in 2017, right about this time of year, I told my therapist about it and I shit you not, the nightmares went away immediately just by getting it off my chest and saying the words out loud and words I had never said to anybody in, in this in ever. And so I get that part of it. What's the other, what, what do you do next? Once they've acted it out or played it out or drawn it out or articulated it, how do you teach people? What are the, what are the skills you, you work with people on on how to cope with and to recover from those thoughts and memories and traumas? So we'll do a lot of things. We, we do a lot of um, work around, we call it psychoeducation. So it's information around triggers. So, right. If your offender, uh, would get drunk and sexually abuse you. The smell of alcohol on someone's breath, boom, is a trigger. And so part of treatment, like what you're talking about, getting it off your chest, processing it in the capacity with a, a, someone who could kind of contain that story like a therapist, soothes your brain's reactivity and your body. <sighs> I sleep a little bit better. And then you're allowed to, you're then able to make the logical connection between, oh, when I smell cigarette smoke or alcohol in someone's breath or someone wearing a certain cologne or when I'm around my cousins, I get this, oh, I feel this way. And so we can help people develop what we call insight, like an understanding, and then for them to be able to go, oh, I know what that is. That's the trigger. I know I'm safe right now. I know this is just a reminder. You know, um, something that comes up quite a bit uh and I know you don't treat adults. You treat, you treat child children and adolescents. Well, one thing that comes uh, comes up quite a bit is the you know standard the standard way of doing things is I as as the law enforcement investigator uh, uh, and uh, you know detectives like me and people people all in that field who work these cases we will watch through clo uh, via closed circuit television with if if uh, unless it has been screened out and CPS will screen out if the perp's not in the home. Mm -hmm. Uh, we'll watch with the Child Protective Services person. And as long as the person who, you know, is uh, about whom a disclosure is made is not the parent, the next thing I'll do is I'll go across the hall in the room and talk to the parent afterwards. And one of the things that I always make a point to tell them, and, and some parents are, um, I had one very recently who was just beside themselves um, with grief about what had happened and what had been disclosed, uh, to the point where it actually kind of upset me. Uh, and some are more matter of fact or, or, or distance or, or, or play a better poker face. But one thing I, I always make sure and tell them is you're a victim too. 
this affects the whole family. You need to get help. And to the extent that I'm aware of, of, of where the resources are available, I tell them, you have a caseworker here. Make sure you talk to your caseworker. You need therapy. Um, if someone comes to you, uh, do you have people, adult therapists or therapists who deal with adults you can refer uh, families out to? Absolutely. Naturally, I'm very picky about who I refer to. Um, and that could be a whole nother podcast. <laughs> You know, there's quality of people in the field, and we've got therapists that sometimes really shouldn't be in the field. But we also have some really great therapists here. And so I have a network of people that I'm connected to that I can make referrals to. Sometimes just collateral work, which means I work with a child and I meet with a parent like once a month. And sometimes just that can be healing. But with our multi-problem families or with a mom who has her own history of abuse that's never been addressed or is now triggered by her child's disclosure, that mom may need additional therapy. It may be beyond what I can do, and that's when I would refer that mom out. Uh, what are the risks with regard to uh, long, long-term long problems and behaviors to somebody who suffers this type of abuse and it goes untreated? The short and long-term impact of sexual abuse is well, well, well documented. So we know that it leads to mental health issues, severe depression, general anxiety, post-traumatic stress disorder, eating disorder, substance abuse, um, poor health outcomes, re-victimization, yep, all, all, yeah, sex trafficking, all of that stuff it puts you at great risk for. But we know the sooner we can get in and do intervention, the better that will be. And so that seems to be like the wild card, right? Like, how quickly is that family going to get treatment and how qualified is that therapist? And is the therapist really trauma informed? Do they, do they know what they're doing? In the 14 years you've been in Las Cruces, if you had to guess how many, how many clients have you treated? Over a thousand thousands, I would say, because I also, not only do I do individual, but I also did the sexual abuse groups. And so we would have at any point in time, 50 kids in that program. What do you do to keep yourself healthy dealing with this type of thing professionally? Uh, my own personal therapy I've had before. I've got a great support system of friends and colleagues um, doing things that I enjoy, if that's binging Netflix or if that's going to brunch with my friends. But you have to build that stuff into your schedule because it is super hard when the helper needs help. And I've been in the field for 25 years. I have contained so much trauma for children and teens that it's it's overwhelming and so you have to get those you have to augment and have that self-care coming at you from multiple venues you know if you're anything like me or most of the other people who who work in this field you've you've had probably had the thought and i'll share my own experience with you the first time i ever interviewed a man in his 60s about doing some really horrible things to a grandchild and I'm I'm pretty straightforward. I'm very clear about what I'm investigating and what the what the allegations are. And I I go right. I mean I'm I'm detailed. And I had this thought. I mean this is probably 2011. Um, I had the thought, what on God's green earth is wrong with me that I'm able to sit here and have this calm conversation with this person? I should be ripping their head off and shitting down their neck. I mean. <laughs> And I'm like, what the F is wrong with me that I can have this? But you realize that it's just this thing you do as a professional. You walk in, there's a little, little switch that you flip. Um, where I draw the line is that I don't, if I'm not directly involved in a case or if it's not something that's being staffed in my presence, um, if it's something in the media, scroll right past it. 
There was a case recently, I know I'm not going to say the name, but the one you're probably aware of about five years ago in Albuquerque, methamphetamine, murder, 10-year-old child. I don't, I, I know very little beyond what I've seen in a headline because I can't, that's where I draw the line. So I can, I don't want to watch a documentary. I don't want to do any of that. Um, and I think it's really important. I, I do want to, to talk about uh, two more things before we go. Uh, I'm going to get back again to uh, how grateful I was to have you as an expert witness uh, in that trial we had in December. We talked about it the other day. The, the, the bad guy got 12 years in prison. Fantastic. Um, yeah. And I think that, you know, certainly not, it's not that law enforcement gets the pats on the back that we deserve, but when things like this do happen and cases go to trial and it makes the news, um, people usually say good job cops or good job DA. And what they don't realize is that there is this multidisciplinary task force. And I can tell you that, you know, there are certain child protective services investigators I've worked with for a dozen years. And there is a crew of, of forensic interviewers and, and advocates and case managers at La Pinon I've worked with for um, not quite that long. There's been a little bit more turnover, but there's a good good crew of people. Um, you, I mean, you guys are the heroes and the ones who don't get the praise. And I can tell you there is, and I'm sure you understand this as well, there is a certain type of bond you develop with people that you go through these things with. And these same interviewers and these same CPS workers and case managers who sat in rooms with me and listened to this all this stuff – you have this shared, I don't know if the term is right, but this shared vicarious trauma, and you have these bonds. I truly love these people. Yes. And I'm, it's, I'm getting a little choked up thinking about it because I, I, you have these close relationships. And, and um, you know, I know everybody deals with things their own way. I, sometimes I don't deal with my stress and anxiety the right way. Um, liver. Um, my, th- my therapist has some things to say about that. <laughs> um, but I, I just want to get it out there to anybody who's listening that there there is this whole team of people behind the scenes who do all this work that, you know, uh, really make the system go around. I what I we may have touched on this a little bit, but I don't want to I don't want to get out of here without talking about it uh, just specifically. What are some of the biggest, most common myths or misconceptions that we get from from the media or from popular culture about child sexual abuse just in general? Well, the big one we're dealing with right now, uh, and we have our MDT has done some work with the Sun News, who has been very receptive to changing some of their verbiage. But even last week in El Paso, and this was the El Paso Times and KVIA, it was a coach who was accused of and arrested for a sex crime against a minor, and they're calling it coach accused of sexual relationship. There's no relationship. It's a crime. It's a victimization. It's an exploitation. Relationship makes it sound like we're equal. Like she consented. She contributed. She's complicit. They were partners. It is a victimization. He is an adult. She's a a child. I don't care if she's 14. I don't care if she's 16. He's an adult. He's in a position of authority. So I think that's a big piece. And you can tell I'm passionate about it right now because we're trying to make some movement. We're not really getting the response from the El Paso media that we want. They're, they're basically, their response to me is, well, we got the word relationship from law enforcement. Well, I don't care if you got it from a magical unicorn. You are the media, right? You put the word out right. You're calling it a relationship when it's not. And I think we see that a lot with teens. Uh, it's easier, I think, in our mind. Well, first, it's easier to just say it's not happening. So it's super scary to think it is happening. But then if it does happen, okay, so it happens to a, a young child. She's seven. 
But when it happens to a 14-year-old, then there's questions like, well, what was she wearing? And was she drunk? And is she a troubled kid? Like somehow, because she's a teen, that she is complicit. You know, you brought something up that I hadn't really thought about. And there are a couple other things that I was thinking about preparing for this interview that, that I had, had kind of forgotten about, but you just brought them up. You just made a reference to him used male pronouns being the, the perpetrator and her being the victim. We know that most often that's the case. Yes. We've all heard of Mary Kay Latorno and Billy Fulau. My question to you is, is the trauma different? Because a, at the age he was, uh, a, at, I, he was 12 when it happened, but I remember from the pictures he was a very developed and, and pubescent you know, teenager. Boys and girls at that age think differently about things. Um, and, and we've all heard just a, almost any guy, you know, would be like, man, I love it. If a teacher that, you know, yes, that traditional, but my, my question for you is, is the trauma different? I'm not sure what all the, um, idiosyncrasies are of that, but the trauma is different. And part of it is, and, and I'm glad you brought it up. I want everyone to know that I say, I refer to offenders as male and victims as female, because that's the most common victimization that's reported that we know of, and it's just easier for presentation to say males are the the perpetrators and females are the victims, but the opposite is true. Moms, grandmothers, aunts, uh, females can be perpetrators and males can be, be victims. Part of what we see in mainstream America is this belief that um, for, for boys, you shouldn't be the victim of a crime. You shouldn't be weak, and you should, certainly shouldn't be the victim of a sex crime. And then you get this mixed message like, well, who isn't hot for teacher, right? So my teacher does these things to me, so is it really a crime? So now they have to deal with not only the impact of being the victim of a crime, but all the stigma that goes along with having your offender be a female. Well, and and one another thing we don't I, these aren't hard hitting interviews. I'm I'm interested in hearing what people have to say, but I am going to ask a question again. One I just really thought of. You explained your rationale for using male when you're referring to a, a, a perpetrator and female when you're referring to a victim. Is there a chance of ever considered the idea that by doing so you may reinforce what you just said that we have this society that says men can't be victims or boys can't be victims of things like this. Is that something you've ever thought? And again, I, I hate to, it, we don't, we don't do hard hitting here, but it's, it's a, a thought I just had. It's a very fair question. And so I do a lot of public speaking. In fact, I had to review my resume today for uh, something different. I did my first public presentation on sexual abuse in 2004. I have presented all over the world on sexual abuse. I've had audiences of 20 all the way up to keynotes of a thousand people where I'm on the main stage. And early on, I did have feedback and somebody said, you only refer to males as offenders and females can be offenders and males can be victims. And part of me thought, is that really what you took from my presentation that I don't know that? So now I do a caveat. I always have disclaimers in the beginning of my presentation. And one of them deals with like what you did before the podcast. You said, audience, heads up, this is upsetting material. You have to, to be trauma-informed, you have to be aware that you're going to hear stuff that's sensitive. But the other caveat that I give, among others, is for ease of presentation, I'm going to refer to males as offenders and females as victims, but we know opposite is true. So I do now put that caveat because I don't want it to be like a self-fulfilling prophecy because I'm saying that, that it shuts... Um, Males and females that have been victimized by a woman, by a female, in a position where they feel like, oh, I don't really fall in that population because I'm not mentioned. So I, I do try to avoid that. 
You know, there's something that, it, so it's funny, um, and you're going to know obviously who I'm talking about, but when I wrote this episode yesterday, I consulted with somebody in-house, literally, um, who knows a little something about play therapy and terminology and things like that. And one of the things that was brought up was exactly what you talked about, how the El Paso Times reported the, the I'm air-quoting, relationship uh, between the adult male and, and the, the underage female. And it got me to thinking, and I, I was I gave this explanation about why sometimes people term things the way they do in New Mexico, all of our sex crimes are basically either criminal sexual penetration or criminal sexual contact. And even within criminal sexual penetration, there is criminal sexual penetration by force or coercion, which is the highest degree. Uh, And then there are certain, there are lesser ones that are lower degree felonies uh, with less uh, jail time attached. Um, One of them will be a person in a position of authority. Uh, it could be a mental health care worker at an inpatient yep. facility or a prison guard or, you know, even a law enforcement officer who has somebody in custody. Uh, there's also um, one subsection of that statute that deals with um, when the victim is incapable of giving consent, whether it's somebody who's a cog- diminished cognitive capacity or somebody who's under the influence of something. And the the explanation I give, and I think that there's probably some good legislative intent when they made these different degrees of even the worst crime uh, one of the worst crimes you can commit is that I would imagine the trauma is different if you suffer a violent forcible rape versus someone slipped a roofie in your drink. Not that one's any better or worse, but the impact on the victim. Can you talk about that at all? Have you noticed, are there differences in in the way someone's psyche is affected, their emotional, their, the, the type of trauma based on the type of, of, of assault that they It's not so much what type of an assault that really makes the difference. It goes back to belief and support. So if you had the most heinous of all heinous sexual abuse, whatever that looks like for a person, and you are believed and supported when you say, hey, this happened to me, and somebody says, I believe you and I am sorry, and we're going to get you help and thank you for telling me, that person is going to do better than a child who experienced maybe what would be classified by the crimes as a lesser crime Um, again just by the law if that person that experienced the class three felony isn't believed and supported oh you're a little liar he would never do that to you and we actually see it in more subtle ways than that we see some initial disbelief from parents like are you sure? Like, why didn't you tell? Why didn't you tell sooner? How could you have let that happen? So all of those statements are victim blaming, right? Like, how come you didn't tell me? How could you let that happen? Are you really sure it happened? So sometimes that disbelief and non-support isn't intended to be malicious per se, but it still is. So that's the biggest prognostic prognostic factor. It's not how severe the law defines the, the criminal act. It's whether or not that child is believed and supported by their family and by the larger community, which I think is where our MDT comes in. That's where when you have a police officer that says, you did the right thing by telling, or I believe you, or the DA's office says, I believe you, or the case manager at the CAC says, I'm sorry this happened to you. All of that provides protective factors. So it buffers all the people that think that she's lying or that she caused it because she didn't say no. I'm so glad I asked that question. I'm so glad I thought of it. I mean, we're, we're, we've run longer than we were supposed to, but like I told you, we're probably going to do that. I'm really glad. And, you know, aside from the children's cases, and I've actually, this sounds 
may not sound great, but I what I tell people a lot is so there's the, the physical and sexual abuse. The 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 physical abuse is actually harder to investigate because you're allowed to hit your kid. And you get into that area of is it in a lot of what the cases I investigate end up being what we what they call inappropriate discipline. You're not allowed to do sexual things to your kids. So if you get a disclosure, that's an easy a much easier case to make. And I also tell people, believe it or not, it take it, it hurts the brain less to inv- the child sexual abuse cases are actually relatively easy to investigate as far as it being hard on the brain and trying to figure the, either there's a, there's a disclosure or it's not. The two hallmarks that I usually see are a good, clear disclosure, and there's almost always a trigger. On the adult side, sexual assaults, there's a difference in how easy some... I, I had a victim a couple of years ago who was a victim of a case. It was somebody she knew, somebody she had been dating, and it was a consent thing. Somebody went too far. Somebody said no, and somebody didn't stop. And I was very frank with her, and I said, you know... If you were walking through a parking lot and some guy yanked you behind a dumpster and beat you violently and raped you, that would be a much easier case to make mm-hmm. than the one that we're dealing with here. And I'm actually, that case ended up, the defendant pled guilty to criminal sexual penetration. But it's just, you could, we could, again, we could go day and, you know, we could split hairs all day. Um, but again, I'm really glad I asked that last question about how, how the type of crime uh, affects and, and causes trauma, what type of trauma, because I, I truly didn't know the answer. Um, and I'm, and I'm really glad we had you here. Like I said, we could, we could talk for hours about this. I feel really honored to have you here. I'm so glad, um, man, you didn't hesitate at all. When I saw you last Wednesday, you're like, Hey, can I, can we do this? Sure. When do you want to do it? Yep. I think this is an important message for our community and for the listeners about sexual abuse and how prevalent it is. Sue Ann, Kenny Nosiska, thank you very much for being my guest here on the Square Peg Podcast. We will be back at you next week with a brand new episode. Next week actually is going to be our uh, season finale for season four. And um, you you may recognize the name of my guest because, well, he's related to the season finale of last season. Uh, Thank you very much for joining us, everybody. Um, I'm your host, Andrew Lawrence. This is the Square Peg Podcast. Please tune in next week. You can hear our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Pandora, and on our homepage at lascruzestoday.com. Thank you so much. We'll see you. Hey, if you are having a wedding uh, and you need a photographer or videographer, if you are a local artist in the southern New Mexico or West Texas area and you uh, need a video, a music video made, uh, a real good place to go is my, my friend Isaac Powell Fox's business, Palomore Productions. Uh, they're located pretty close to Las Cruces downtown. And uh, you can find them on Facebook. You can find them on Instagram and all those different places. Uh, you can also get them at uh, www.palamora.com for all your weddings, music videos, and anything else you need a professional videographer or photographer. The Square Peg Podcast, proudly produced by LasCrucesToday.com and Bravo Mike Communications.